There's one uh, or two stories from this passion narrative that always stand out to me. And so if you would, I would invite you to dive into Luke's perspective on this morning as it started on this resurrection day that we celebrate in Jesus. In chapter 24 of Luke, the story begins like this. The darkness was just beginning to fade away. When the first noises could be heard, most of them had shrunk away in the middle of the chaos on Friday, but they'd found their way back to that room, that room where the meal had been had, the room where there was safety and it had been set apart for them because in reality, they weren't sure where else to go. Most of their tribe was celebrating Passover and most of the rest of the world were walking through the streets like it was a normal day. But it wasn't normal. Everything had changed. And they were beginning to feel like fools for all sorts of reasons. And as the women stirred and started to bring everything together and slip out of the house and into the street to work their way down to the tomb, they wondered if they were just as foolish as everyone else. They wondered if it was too late to anoint the body, if it had passed too much time. Where were they? When he had been put into that tomb, they hadn't had time to anoint his body then. They hadn't had time to walk through the burial practice, so they thought, we'll go now. At least we'll do something, because we have to do something. As the door closed behind them, he watched them leave and took a deep breath again believing that there was nothing left for him to do. He had already failed. He was the fool that should have known. He sat at the meal and waited and watched as his king, his lord, the one who he had hung on every word with bated breath for so long, had eaten this meal and celebrated the breaking of this bread and had looked him in the eye and said, you, my friend, you, three times you, Tomorrow, we'll claim something else besides me. And so he watched them leave the room, knowing that he was the fool who didn't listen. He was the fool who thought, no way, not me. I'll take the sword to the garden because I will not betray him. I'll be the one to show that I am a warrior. I will stand strong. He was the fool who cut off the ear of a soldier because he got the story wrong. And there he sat as the darkness began to fade, wondering if the light would ever return. He waited. He listened. He wasn't sure what the plan was, but 
the rest of the men in the room were starting to strategize and to talk and to ask questions and some, some of the bolder ones like John were beginning to ask, where did you go because there was only me left at the end? Where were you? And he was angry in righteousness, but yet this one, he just sat on the ground and watched. And then, and then the doors burst open. The women who had gone to the tomb returned and something had happened. Something was different. They, they were babbling and chattering all at the same time saying things like he's not here and there were two men and they were overwhelming and their presence was there but he wasn't there. And he didn't wait. He burst through the door and began to run to that place to the place that he wasn't sure he ever wanted to see because his shame had been so overwhelming. But now the chance, the thought that he might not be there, that this might be true, that there might be a chance for reconciliation and for him to apologize and say, I'm sorry, Lord. He ran and sprinted. And as he came into the tomb, he saw he's not here. Maybe we weren't fools after all. Meanwhile, two men had left the house and were making their way back home on this road to Emmaus, and they were talking about all that had happened, verbally processing everything that they had experienced when a stranger approached them. And he looked at them and asked a nonsensical, foolish question, what happened? What is this story that you talk about? The men looked at the stranger and said, are you, are you serious? Have you not heard anything in Jerusalem? Do you not check Twitter? Where were you? What are you talking about? Tell me what you're talking about. And so they filled him in. We're talking about this Jesus of Nazareth who as a prophet, his words and his actions were like nothing we had ever seen. We walked with hope. He sent us into towns ahead of him even to proclaim that he was coming. And then we arrived here in this Jerusalem, in this space, believing that our king was with us. But they took him. Just two days ago, he was alive. Now he's not. He's he's gone. In that moment, the stranger looked at them and said, such foolish words. Do you not know the word of God? And as they continued to walk, he walked them through over 600 prophecies fulfilled through this man, Jesus Christ. And they arrived at dinner. And the man, the stranger, continued to walk. But the two, the disciples, asked him to pause and to come in. And to sit with them and to talk more and to have dinner. And so the stranger enters the house. And they sit to eat. And Luke writes that it was the moment where he broke 
the bread that they realized they were with him. It wasn't foolishness after all. It wasn't a myth. It wasn't a legend. It wasn't great story. It was real. The resurrected Jesus stood before them and on Thursday he had broken the bread prophesying this is what I'm going to do. I will be broken and poured out on your behalf. And then on Sunday at dinner with two men who were headed home he stood and broke the bread and said look it was finished. I have returned. And they ate and as they ate he disappeared. And the disciples sprinted back to that room where the one who had denied him was telling his story. And the ones who wanted to anoint him were saying that he's alive. And the two who were in awe of all that he had said and done returned and said, he is real. And in that moment, the Christ entered the room and whispered to them, peace be with you. I welcome all of the fools into my house. I am Peter. I have denied in moments that I should have claimed. There have been moments in my own story where I've just longed to run to him and hope that a simple embrace would welcome me back. But he wasn't there because he was waiting on my faith to believe that he was still real. I've been those women. That's on tape that I've been women. I've had a moment where all I've wanted to do was anoint his name and make sure that his story and he was okay. I've been those men on that path, walking back through everything that he'd promised and done because the outcome wasn't exactly what I was looking for. And in every moment, whether it's Easter Sunday or the middle of fall, he meets me in the same place. He breaks the bread. And he says, remember you fool. It was finished for you even before you made the mistake. It was finished for you even before you lost your faith. It was finished for you even without your anointing. It was finished Because I was the beginning and the middle and I am the end. And so we commune together, church. Because whether you are Peter, women anointing Jesus, or walking through this story trying to find the sense that it would make in your life, he is here to break bread with us again this morning. Because it was finished. And he welcomes the fools into his kingdom. 
and he transforms their stories. Let's pray. Father, thank you for welcoming, welcoming the fools like me, like Peter, like the rest of us who have questioned you at some place in our life. Thank you for welcoming us into your story and breaking bread with us that is your body broken and your blood shed. A reminder that Friday leads to Sunday and Sunday is resurrection. Sunday is about faith and hope. We pray that these emblems of bread and juice that we partake remind us that you are with us, and I pray that in this moment we would see your face knowing that you are the story. There is no shame for us to carry. There is no guilt. There is only a meal to be had with you, our resurrected King. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I'll re-engage you by asking a question that I know you've been pondering, but I will put this before you today. The question that must be asked is, am I a fool? Now, before your quick exuberance to answer that, to say, yes, Steve, you are a fool, I'm asking more in a collective sense, perhaps in the uh, Spanish would say the ustedes, the idea that are we collectively fools because we are here today, because we believe in a story that is so compelling that we think we need to show up and live our entire lives as, it is, as if it is defined by the story. 1956 was the last time that Easter took place on April Fool's Day, 1956. Now that's what's interesting to me is that's before some of us were born, and if you, if you aren't, we still love you. But the next one will actually take place 11 years from today, and the subsequent one after that, another decade or so after that. So we are going to have all these moments where Easter coincides with April Fool's Day, and I think it's appropriate because as the world tends to view our faith, the way that we live our lives, generally they believe that we are foolish for attaching our lives to such a narrative. They believe, friends, that we are foolish. And if you think about back to 1956, this church that was here at this point was still active. And we have pictures, even up on the front, I can look at it from the 1950s, where there, the pews were absolutely filled because in that time, to be called a believer of Jesus was something that was culturally attractive. If you were a person who did not have faith, you sometimes joined a church or organization that made you seem as if you had faith. But just six decades later, we live in this time where if you claim to believe, then you are called a fool. And I think that's the question that you and I need to grapple with this morning is that are we fools for believing? Are we fools? Ox Oxford's Dictionary defines a fool as someone who is unwise or acts imprudently. Are you a fool? Are you an ignoramus, an idiot, an incredulous believer? Are you a dolt, a dollard, a dunce, a dope? For believing, are you a fool? 
Chris just finished telling us this greater story, and I would offer that it's the greatest story told. It's the idea that life can be found through death and resurrection. It's an amazing story. But as we've seen, that story has been co-opted over the years, and that's such a popular story that we see it everywhere, right? In popular literature. Name any movie that you know that doesn't have some sort of death to resurrection scene, and you, know, you, you, you probably just aren't looking close enough because this is a compelling story. And there are some who will say that this is just a popular narrative that even existed before Jesus, and that's why the story that we believe is, is important. And then there is the temptation for us then to say, is like, no, it's just this ideal of death to life, the resurrection that we need to claim. But friends, I would tell Tell you that if we're really going to believe as the scriptures tell us, then we need to come to grips with the idea that this is not mere mythology, that it's not just an ex- existence for meaning, that it is something transformative, that what happened 2,000 years ago, that God incarnate came to earth and lived life perfectly and was killed for that, but that through his death and resurrection, that death was defeated. And as a result, we have a chance for actual eternal life through that death, friends. That is the story that we need to ask ourselves, do we cling to or are we just fools? Now, this is what's incredible to me is that as we ponder this question this morning, a biblical author actually pondered this question and answered in the affirmative. He says, yes, we're fools for believing this story. 2,000 years ago, one of the most prolific writers in the history of the world, the apostle Paul, was writing a letter to a small church in southern Greece in the city of Corinth. And as he engaged them on multiple issues, as he started his book of 1 Corinthians... He started with this idea of what it really meant in their society to follow Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 through 25, he writes this. The Lord will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent he will frustrate. So where is the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greek look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And much like the people in Corinth were stuck between two worlds, I would offer that we here today are also stuck between two different worlds. See, in Paul's day, the the tension existed between two different groups. The Jews who were God's people but had yet to believe that Jesus was the Messiah that was promised. And the Greeks are also known as the Gentiles, those who were not Jews, the Goyim, those who, who believed in a myriad of things. But the way that Paul sets this up is that he, he has this tension between people who are, are, are adherent to the law and then those who are more into philosophy, 
or if you will, the categories that I present to you, the hyper-religious and the human skeptic. And I would offer that just like the church in Corinth was stuck between these two cultures, you and I are stuck between two similar cultures today. For on one side of us, we have the hyper-religious, and I need to talk about both these categories true because you might be like, I am in that people group, so there's no disrespect that is coming through this right now, but just for us to be able to see this morning is that on one side sit the hyper-religious, and those are people who believe that not only is this faith true, but it is verifiable, that we we have proof and evidence to the point that the hyper-religious will co-opt the words of God, they will change what was said in the Bible just so that that their faith cannot be faith, but that it can be fact and proven. They will say that it is without a doubt that God exists, and if you do not believe that, you are an idiot. And on the other side, maybe those of us in the world are much more familiar with that point, but those who would be humanist skeptics, the idea that they would believe that we as human beings were the race that won out of all evolved creatures, and as such, because of our progress and our brilliant, that we are the ones who can solve everything. Any problem that comes our way, human brilliance can solve, and therefore to even suggest that something exists greater than the human mind is idiocy. And I would tell you that we, friends, tend to be stuck between the hyper-religious and the human skeptics. But as much as they are on opposite ends of the poles, they share one thing. They share the same desire, and it's the desire for certainty. And isn't that usually why we struggle with faith? Don't we tend to struggle with belief because it requires us to sacrifice part of our mind to accept this story of Jesus crucified, resurrected, and eternal life? We want certainty because what certainty does, it gives me assurances And where I sit as a person between the two of these, what I really have is an admittance of foolishness. Because certainty, friends, is not promised to us. And if you buy into the narrative of Jesus, what Paul is saying, what the word of God is saying, is that if you believe this today, you need to own it, that you're a fool. That you're a fool. And that taking such a position on either side, so if you, were, if you talk to the hyper-religious and say, you know, as much as you want to say that you know exactly how God created the world and exactly how old the earth is, that that's not really true. They're going to say you're a fool. And if you tell somebody who has certainty that the human mind and human progress is the greatest thing in the world, and you say, I actually believe that there was a creator God who made all of this, they will label you a fool. Because friends, we who believe are doomed to dwell in foolishness. At the beginning of this portion where Paul talks, he gives what I believe to be one of the most prolific verses in all of scripture. In verse 18 of chapter one, Paul writes that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, It's the power of God. Can I repeat for emphasis so we, this is Bible speak, but track with me right here. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Do you realize that that really is Paul employing circular logic right here? He's like, guys, let me tell you about this story of Jesus. Yeah, it's far-fetched. 
Okay, it's really far-fetched. If you tell somebody who doesn't believe it, they're going to say that's stupid. But for us who believe it, we're going to think that it's brilliant. So just believe it and it's brilliant. Do you recognize that? Friends, that's your religion. <laughs> that's your faith. Because what you're saying is that as much as there's people on the outside who don't believe this and they think this is foolishness, I say, you know what? I recognize this as a foolish message, but not to me. Because to me, this is transformative. This changes my very existence and influences how I act from day to day. Friends, this is nonsense. Faith is nonsense. You know what I want to do? What I want to do is I want to go back to these places and I want to lean into certainty, right? So when I'm talking to my hyper-religious friends, I want them to know that like, okay, maybe I'm off the rails, but not that much because I don't want them to reject and think that I'm a fool for believing that there is space here, there's gaps where I have to fill in what God is actually doing. Similarly, when I'm with my secular friends who do not believe, I want to make sure that I'm not the dumb Christian in the crowd. So I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I, I read me some Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, I, I want to prove my intellectual moxie because I want to please them. But friends, in both those instances, I'm longing for certainty, but all I'm promised here is foolishness for believing this story. You know why I really love this thing? Because we read back in the New Testament and we read back in the Bible and you're like, ooh, the church in Corinth. You know, it was easier for them because they had all of these miracles that they could see and remember, you know, like if I just saw me some miracles, that would solve everything. Do you realize what Paul is saying in here is that the Jews who demand signs, their whole history was filled with miracles. And every time God performed a miracle, whether it was parting a sea or eliminating entire people who were coming on from, they stopped believing immediately after. So we want all of this sight. We want faith to be seen, and yet the church in Corinth were not those people who were at the cross. They were hundreds of miles away. They didn't see Jesus' empty tomb firsthand. They didn't see miracles right before their eyes. All they had were these teachers who said, this is a story that will change your eternity, and you should believe, and they believed. What Paul is trying to do is to get them to own their foolishness. And friends, I'm telling you, on this day of all days, when we pull out our pastels and have a great old time, we need to own up that this is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You, I are fools, but we are called to embrace the foolishness. Embrace the foolishness. Some ways we want that, right? Like there's times where I'll, I, I, I will do that. Like I like being a little off center. But boy, there are times where it's embarrassing, isn't it? And our fear of embarrassment so often keeps us from putting ourselves out there and just saying, look, this message is difficult, but I believe it. And I don't just believe part of it, I believe it all to be true. That Jesus died for me, he rose from the dead, and that changes my eternity. Friends, we're fools, but that's okay. As a minister, ordained minister, I have struggles with Easter because for me, you know, there's this point like, it's just like any other Sunday. We get the chance to have Easter every day, you know, every time we meet, it's good stuff. But then there's also times where I'm like, no, it's special, right? 
Like, I, I, I actually was out of town last week. I know it snowed. I think there were fewer people here last week. And actually, I would bet my life on it just because you pagans won't get out of bed if there's a little snow on the ground. But here's the thing. You're like, was he? Re-? I don't know. This is it. But it's Easter, right? I got to go to church. And not only that, I'm on point fleck, if you will. And that's what I make my effort to do. Like, that's what I try to do. Do you notice how I upped the game today, right? Do you know, like, can I show my socks? My socks even have a variation match of my jacket. It's all good. But I was like, how do you properly convey this aspect of the message? And I know some of you, because some of you are so OCD that you have not heard a thing that I said the entire day because you think that idiot, before he walked up on the stage, could not check that his collar was askew And we're all supposed to sit here and understand, like, okay, well, Steve Steve can't, you know, he can dress up nice, but he can't get the easiest thing down. And I was trying to think, how do you illustrate this? And I'm like, there's no other way to do it besides Steve being an idiot. And for those of you who have known me longer, if you've just met me, this is par. But it's the little things that just put us out there. It makes us just not perfect. And it opens us up for critique, doesn't it? That's what following Jesus is sometimes. The older I get, the more I'm challenged by this idea that I sometimes so desperately love people who don't know Jesus that I'm willing to sacrifice parts of him for something that I view that is greater. And I'm embarrassed because I don't want to look like a fool. But if we can really stop and say, this is a foolish story. And our ability to lean into this on faith and rely on those who lived hundreds and thousands of years before us, it makes foolishness a little bit of okay, a little okay. So on this Easter, our message for you is to embrace the foolishness. Maybe it's even apropos that Easter today is on April Fool's Day. Later in the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes this. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, I love this point, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ. It's okay to be foolish if it's being foolish in something that is so much greater than yourself. And we believe that to be Jesus, the cross, his resurrection, eternal life let's pray heavenly father we thank you for this day this wonderful day the holiest day of the christian calendar and father as much as we cherish and love all the traditions around this day even the pagan ones as much as we love this we hold back so many times We hold back because we don't want those who do not believe to view us as foolish, as being feeble-minded, as being ignoramus, dunce. So we're embarrassed by you. Father, I would just ask this for us. As we leave here as your people, will you challenge us to sacrifice our pride, our put-togetherness for the sake of the foolishness to which we're called? Father, it's such an amazing message 
to those of us who believe. Help us to live out that belief. And we pray, Father, that as we try to find that place of foolishness, that we do not look down on others, the hyper-religious, the humanist skeptic, the, the people even here who might be vacillating from time to time. Help us, help us not to see that as, as, as a detriment, Father. Help us to see it as an opportunity. An opportunity to die to self, to peer into the empty tomb, and to appreciate the life you offer us because of death. In all these things, Father, we give you praise, and we praise your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.